Hey, this is Downtown, the podcast, episode 20. Welcome in. Rich Kimball here with Kerry Haskell from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. Downtown, the radio program airs every weekday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. On WZON AM 620, WKIT HD3, streaming audio at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com, and you can also download the WZON app. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. On this, this week's program, a couple of interesting, talented writers uh, will join us. Mark Freeman of The Hollywood Reporter looks back 40 years to the debut of one of the best shows in television history, Taxi. Mark had a chance to talk with most of the principals, actors, writers, directors, producers, and uh, we'll chat with him about that show a little later on in the podcast. But we get things underway by welcoming him for the first time on the program, Author Jeff Perlman, he has written a number of books about sports through the years. Uh, This new one is fantastic, and as he tells us, it's a real labor of love. It's all about the USFL. Uh, The book that is uh, released this week is entitled Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. Here's author Jeff Perlman. Talk about a labor of love. Uh, As I understand it, you put a lot of time and effort into this book that goes all the way back to a research paper in high school. Yeah, well, I uh, I grew up, I'm a child of the 80s, and I love the, the USML, like love, love, love. And when I was a uh, Mayo Pack High School, Mayo Pack, New York, I was a senior, AP English. My teacher, Mr. Height, gave us a, we had to write a 20-page paper for our final project, which seemed like a ton for a 18-year-old uh, kid. And uh, I, I said I wanted to do the downfall of the United States Football League, and the guy's like, really? <laughs> I like, yeah, I just think it's going to be really good. And he's like, uh... You know, like the kid next to you is doing like the history of Lake Mayo Pack. And someone else is doing like Ronald Reagan versus Jimmy Carter and analysis of presidencies. And uh, you're doing the, the U.S. of L. But he let me do it, and I ended up handing in 40 pages. So I'm sure his not delight about the downfall of the U.S. Because I just love that league so ridiculously much. And uh, I got a B plus. That's it, a B plus. Well, uh, from from what we're hearing, the book is going to get much better grade than that. The USFL, I, I'm I'm a little bit older than you, but man, that was such a fun league and so much talent gathered in that league, and so many guys who went on to have success in the NFL. What was it about that league that drew you to them in the day? I mean, it's kind of like what when you're a kid, what is it that draws you to, to singers or TV shows or whatever? It's the, the, me, the USFL, the colors. The uniforms, the names, you know, the bandits, the gold, the outlaws, the maulers. Um, it was different. It was a spring league instead of a fall. They had different rules. They had the coach challenge. They had a replay. They had, you know, uh, one foot in. There was a catch. They had kicking off a tee. And mostly, I think, I think it was just the audacity of it all. Like, they started just picking off NFL players left and right. They started drafting and signing players the NFL desperately wanted. They got Herschel Walker. Then they signed the next two Heisman Trophy winners, Mike Rozier and Doug Flutie. It was just this just an audacious sort of, you know, groundbreaking idea of football that I just loved. Well, one of those owners, of course, uh, the man who sits in the White House these days, and uh, number forty-five. Some of the things he does today are some of the same things he did. Uh, you, you write that Trump was very uh, well; he was very Trumpy as an owner in the USFL. Well, he ruined the league. Uh, that's not a political statement. He actually ruined the league, and, and you can go back. Uh, first season, 1983, he did not own the New Jersey Generals. The second season, 
he bought the Genos. And in the lead-up to buying the team, all you did was praise the USFL, how great the league is. I love it. I'm excited to be here. He's approved as an owner. All the papers are signed. Immediately, we need to move to fall. Fall is where the action is. We need to move to fall. And, um, you know, in hindsight, it turns out, and this has been well-documented, he wanted an NFL franchise. That's it. He didn't care about the USFL. He never cared about the USFL. He saw the USFL as a ticket to getting in the NFL and even had a meeting while he was a USFL owner. He arranged a meeting with Pete Rozelle, the NFL commissioner at the Pierre Hotel in New York City. We said to him, um, I don't care about the USFL. I, I've never really cared about it. Um, I'll do what you guys need for me to get an NFL franchise. And he really had the idea, because the Jets had just moved to New Jersey, to have a team in Manhattan. And he thought he could use the USFL as leverage. And Pete Rozelle, who saw through him immediately, and always had, said um, very bluntly, as long as I'm involved with the NFL, as long as my family is involved with the NFL, you will never have a team. And Trump, one of his qualities, I guess, he doesn't really take no for an answer. And he continued to push the USFL to move to fall, fight the NFL, with the hopes that the, ultimately they would force the NFL into merging. And as many people know, they sued the NFL, and they won a dollar. And that was the death of the USFL. Do you think that it's coincidence that all these years later, Trump has made it a key part of his agenda to attack the NFL? Obviously, some of that is to appeal to the base, but how much of that do you think goes back to his inability to get a franchise? A ton of it. He was rejected by the NFL countless times, time after time after time. They showed no interest in him. Pete Rozelle was very true to his word. Um, the NFL was not interested in him. And one thing that's really kind of fascinating is when, when Donald Trump started talking about kneeling and NFL players and kneeling and how horrible it is, um, guys who covered the USFL started bringing up the point that during USFL games, Trump would routinely be sitting down conducting business during the national anthem, that he would not be standing when players are standing. So... It all dates back to this feud he's had with the NFL for years and really the feeling of rejection he's had from a league that never showed any interest in him. So it's not a political statement. This is not about left or right, Democrat or Republican. I can just tell you him, what he did to the USFL uh, as a USFL fan was really crushing. And even before that meeting and the plan to go head-to-head in the fall, he had he had blown up the salary structure of the league, too, and everybody had agreed early on that they were all going to be on the same page when it came to keeping the salary somewhat reasonable. I mean, he wasn't the first. He did not deserve, you know, specific blame for that. There are a lot, you know, the Michigan Panthers, 1983, make the uh, USFL title game. The team was struggling, and then the owner, uh, Alfred Taubman, went out and got three former Pittsburgh Steelers offensive linemen and blew up the bank to do it. Um, there was a lot of the Pittsburgh Maulers, you know, signed uh, Mike Rozier out in Nebraska, gave him a million dollars at a time, when that was not a common thing. Uh, teams got crazy, and Trump definitely sort of took it to the next level where he started signing any – he was going after every – you name an NFL star at that time, he was pretty much going after me. Try getting Warren Moon out of Canada. Try getting Randy White from the Calabonis, Mark Gasnow from the Jets, Lawrence Teller from the Giants. Uh, he almost had an agreement with Don Shula to leave the Dolphins and coach the Generals. He was throwing around money. Again, he wanted a team that was NFL caliber uh, and that the NFL would look at and say, whoa, we, we need to add this to our sort of had nothing to do with winning a USFL championship. I don't even think he knew the specifics of that. <laughs> and when he signed Doug Flutie, only Trump would do this, he asked for the other owners to chip in and help pay the salary. And he literally, it's so funny because I was researching that while Trump was talking about building the wall and how Mexico would pay for it. It was almost simultaneous. And he, uh, 
They already had Brian Sipes, the 1980 NFL MVP, as their quarterback, so they didn't need a quarterback. But Doug Flutie was big and shiny and bright, so Trump signed him to the uh, highest, the biggest contract in pro football history. Doug Flutie, you know, preposterous. And um, he tells his cohorts at the Generals, he says, I'm going to sign him, but the other owners are going to pay the contract. And he actually wrote a letter that I have to the commissioner at the time, Harry Usher, saying, I've done the USFL an amazing service by bringing in Doug Flutie. You can already see the impact. And I expect all the other owners to contribute to his salary. And the number of owners who contribute to Doug Flutie's salary, not coincidentally, equals the number of Mexican Mexican government officials who have put any money into the wall. <laughs> the more things change, the more they stay the same. We're talking with Jeff Perlman. His new book comes out next week, Football for a Buck. You can pre-order it. Uh, the Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. Uh, I don't know if you had a favorite team. For me, it was that that Houston team and the run-and-shoot offense. How about for you? Uh, I, I was, it's kind of funny, actually. I was a Generals fan because I grew up in New York. Um I will say, though, that the Houston Gamblers were probably, a, if not a close second, in the top three. Number one, they had great uniforms. Number two, Jim Kelly was a quarterback. And I remember 1984, 44 touchdown passes. And the cool thing the Gamblers did is um, they brought in all these undersized receivers from small colleges, and most of them were running backs in college. So if you remember Ricky Sanders, who wound up with the Redskins, mm. the Houston Gambler receiver. Gerald McNeil, who ended up with the Browns. Clarence Rodan, who ended up with the Redskins. Um, they were all former, like, oh, Richard Johnson ended up with the, with the Detroit Lions. They're all, like, running backs or mediocre small college receivers who all ran 4-2 or 4-340s. And they got Mouse Davis of Portland State to be the offensive coordinator. He was, he was the brainchild of the run and shoot. And all of a sudden, Houston is putting out four wide receivers, five wide receivers. They signed a tight end because Jack Hardy, the head coach, wanted one. And three days later, he cut him because he realized there was no need for a tight end in this offense. <laughs> They just blew up football. It was so exciting. But, but Jim Kelly didn't really like that offense when it first started out, right? No, because he came out of Miami as a drop back and, you know, big arm, just throw it. And they sign him, and they want you to roll out, quick hits, and his quick reads, and you're always going to have guys going to be darting all over the field across the middle. He wasn't used to that. He was used to a tight end to a button hook, one guy across the middle, one guy go deep. And, um, he was really resistant to the offense. And then what Jerry Argovitz, the owner of the team, did, he traded for Todd Dillon. Uh, L.A. had the rights to Todd Dillon. He was a former uh, Long Beach State quarterback. And Todd Dillon ran that sort of offense in college. And Dillon comes in, and he's practicing, and he's, he looks great. And Jim Kelly meets with Jerry Argovitz one day, and he says, I can't believe you haven't brought this guy in. I'm the quarterback. And Argovitz is like, well, let me see you play like it, because you stink, and we will sit you. I don't care how much we're paying you. And he said, you know, from that moment on, Jim Kelly was Jim Kelly and became one of the great quarterbacks in pro football history. You interviewed uh, some 400 people associated with the USFL. Was there a, a favorite of all the conversations and all the people you tracked down? I mean, I loved, um, as far as big names go, I really loved Steve Young. So Steve Young was a quarterback of the LA Express, and he famously infamously was signed a $40 million contract, which wasn't really, it was an annuity deal. Not altogether unlike what Walter Payton signed with the Bears uh, earlier, but he became known as the $40 million man, the face of greed in pro sports. And he literally was a guy driving like a 19 year old Oldsmobile <laughs> with rips in his pants before his trendy to have rips in his pants. And, and he's just this guy. And, and he told me, you know, he's with the Express, and they basically it started out great, and then they lost all their money, and they had no money to pay players. And the grass became overgrown, and they stopped serving steak and vegetables to the players. And one day they're driving to a game, 
and the bus driver just pulls the bus over, and he says, I'm not moving another inch until someone on this bus pays me. They owed him 500 bucks. They're trying to pass a hat around the bus just trying to get to the damn football game, and um, they end up, the trainer ended up like having to go cash a check to pay the owner of the, uh, to pay the bus driver. So it was like, uh, it was a, uh, it was just a crazy, crazy sort of thing. And he was great. He was really great. So two new leagues poised to try and uh, begin to, uh, in some way, compete with the NFL in the next couple of years. What are the lessons from the USFL that future leagues might be wise to learn? Uh, don't go crazy on spending. Don't take the NFL on directly. Um, you know, be, I feel like a team could do really well by um, – working with the NFL by developing players where the sort of idea is catch the rising stars and that it's a great thing if the quarterback for whatever, the Orlando team winds up in a year being, you know, Dak Prescott's backup with the Cowboys. I feel like that's a way to do it. You cannot take on the NFL directly and expect to win. It's just, it's just not realistic. And, and the NFL is a million times bigger now than it was in the early 80s. So now it's almost, it's, it would be preposterous. Jeff, while we have you here, I wanted to also bring up a wonderful piece you did with our basketball coach here at the University of Maine, Richard Barron, uh, for The Athletic, and telling oh, yeah. the story of his his remarkable comeback from uh, an illness that plagued and confused all kinds of medical experts. Oh, thank you so much. So that was, um, I went to the University of Delaware. I'm a blue hen, and um, I always have kind of paid attention to Maine sports over the years just because it's just been a conference. And... Uh, he was just a remarkable story and a really impressive and courageous guy. So um, sometimes you write articles and it's just an honor to do them. And it may not be the best thing you've ever written as far as, you know, dazzling word choice or blah, 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 but you just feel better about yourself that you've told someone's story. And that, I mean, that's a classic example of it. No doubt about that. Uh, can I mention this uh, pre-order opportunity that the people have for the book and, and what they could possibly win? Yes. I mean, you know, if you, uh, if you order the book and you email me, and you can see this all on Twitter on my website. Uh, I'm giving away a ton of USFL t-shirts, stickers, you know, even hats. You know, just trying Because the thing is, the USFL, it's not like most of the books I've written. It was, first of all, it was a pure labor of love. Second of all, it's not like Brett Favre that comes with an automatic audience or Walter Pate or you know Bearsmith. This is a 30-year-old league. A lot of people don't remember it. Um, a lot of people don't share the passion that I have for it. But it's an amazing story. So basically, I'm going all out to push this thing because I just believe in this book and this story more than any other thing I've written. That's Jeff Perlman here on Downtown, the podcast, talking about his new book on the USFL, Football for a Buck. When we come back, we'll talk about one of the great shows in television history, Taxi. Mark Freeman of The Hollywood Reporter coming up next after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Just over five years ago, two friends teamed up to create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing methods. And with that, Ice Brewing Company was born. 
G-N-E-I-S-S. Nice, based in Limerick, Maine, right in the foothills of the White Mountains. And over there, Dustin and Tim combine a love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. Now, whether it's the nice Weiss, the sun and shine, IPAs, stouts, porters, or any of their seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice. Ask for beers from Nice at your favorite restaurant or bar and look for Nice in cans all over the state of Maine. Work hard, play hard, be nice. Well, TV fans will know that as the theme from Taxi that made its debut 40 years ago this month on ABC. Launched the careers of so many talented people like Judd Hirsch, Tony Danza, Mary Lou Henner, Christopher Lloyd for that matter, Danny DeVito, uh, the list goes on and on. Mark Freeman of The Hollywood Reporter had a chance to talk to all those folks, the principals behind the making of Taxi. We talked with Mark about all of that recently here on Downtown, the podcast. Like everybody else, uh, I was shocked in reading your piece to remember that Taxi was only on the air for five seasons. You know, Danny DeVito said that that's one of the things that people come up to him the most and comment about the show is that it's only for five, and really, the last two years, it's buried, one year at ABC and one year at NBC. But if you if you have iconic episodes, I guess you don't need to have many more years than that. Well, that's for certain. And, uh, well, you talk about the actors, but the creative team behind it, too. Uh, James L. Brooks, Dave Davis, Jim Burroughs, who might be the most successful director in the history of television comedy, just those folks alone would have probably been enough to assure this this was going to be a successful show. And two people um, not mentioned as well who were co-creators were Stan Daniels and Ed Weinberger. Mm. And the four of them, Davis, Brooks, Weinberger, and Daniels, were pretty much the biggest and most successful behind-the-scenes people and in television, and we're working at MTM, and they came over to Paramount and developed the show. So you already had that behind them. And then Jim Burroughs, um, this was his first big gig. He was doing periodic episodes for Bob Newhart and Mary Tyler Moore, but they really let him free on this one, and, and the actors just totally responded to him and set him off on a brilliant career. And the impetus for the series, uh, as you point out, was a piece about a cab company that was originally in The New Yorker. Yeah, so they owed ABC two series. And a a few years before, when they were still at MTM, Brooks had read an article in The New Yorker describing these drivers who had day jobs, uh, night jobs as taxi drivers, so they could pursue in the daytime their careers and aspirations. And um, he loved it, held on to the idea, got Grant Tinker to buy the idea, who's the head of MTM. And when they went over to Paramount and needed a series, he went back and asked Grant if he could buy that back, those rights, and Grant just gave it to him. You know, it's interesting, too. I, sometimes to be successful, you've got to be flexible. And it sure looks like the creators of the show kept that idea in mind because when you look at all of the actors who were cast – very few of them fit the character descriptions that they had going in. Yeah, there was, uh, I didn't go at length um, at it in the article, but 
they were looking for a wide range of people, Alex Rieger being the center, the maypole that everyone has to dance around. And they did a lot of work for him on the coasts before landing on Judd Hirsch. But some of the other ones, like uh, Tony Danza, his character was originally supposed to be a heavyweight Irishman who was going to be somewhat um, spacey based on getting too many punches versus somewhat simple, which Tony Banta is. Um, and then Elaine, they had wanted someone about 10 years older, and she was going to have a teenage daughter, but they just fell in love with Mary Lou, and she came in, and she's 25, and they ended up, if you watch the series, she ends up with two young kids who are both under 10. And what was great about the show in so many ways, it, it was not a jokey show. It was a show about characters and their situations, and that allowed the humor quite often to develop organically. You know, I think that's not unique to that show, but it is unique to television's best shows, that they don't do set-up punchline, they don't have those catchphrases that the character has to say every episode and then the audience laughs if they are laughing. <laughs> it's not a sound laugh track. But um, basically, the best shows develop character and the things that the characters say and the way that the characters move are always true to the character, but there's humor within that because of expectation. Jim, Reverend Jim being a spaced-out druggie, he doesn't say jokes. He says things that a spaced-out druggie um, would say, basically, of that era who had survived the 60s. So there's just humor in the everyday and the natural versus uh, forcing jokes out of a situation. We're talking with Mark Freeman of The Hollywood Reporter. So many great characters, uh, but Louie, my gosh, uh, what a wonderful character. And, and for Danny DeVito, what an opportunity to wrap your arms uh, around a guy that... Uh, could have been someone people hated, and yet as mean as he was to everybody, you saw that deep down there there was a heart there somewhere in Louis. So, so Danny had said in the interview with me, and if you read about him online, that some some of his friends were frowning on him um, to do television. Uh, Jack Nicholson, he had just worked with on One Floor of This Cuckoo's Nest, which incidentally is where they got Christopher Lloyd from too, through Danny's recommendation, mm. but. Um, the thing was, when he read the character, he knew, he saw the potential in it. They had all these quirks to his character, living alone with his mother, basically, loving these Mel Torme albums, having all these little quirks, uh, which he even said when he set up the cage in the show, he, he put up posters of um, Taxi Driver and got signed by De Niro, things he thought the character would do. And it, rather than be a one-dimensional um, I won't use any of the bad words, rather than be one-dimensional and not nice person or despicable character, he, they wrote for him the other side, moments where you had compassion for him. Um, one of the biggest ones, uh, which isn't in the article as well because the story ends up being too long, is, and it's going to sound bad in the setup, uh, he puts a peephole in the woman's bathroom, and Elaine discovers that, gets him fired, and there's this conversation at the end which won him his Emmy Award where basically he apologizes more or less to get his job back but she won't take it and then he tells her this humiliating experience of having to shop in the children's section mm. of stores um, and when he's done with that really touching speech he, he says is, is that how I made you feel and she said yes 
and then he gives a heartfelt apology, and it's just just an example of the, the other side of Louis, that he is a human, three-dimensional person, even if he leans towards being despicable most of the time. Yeah, and they took so many chances like that, and also in the piece online, uh, you feature one of the most memorable episodes, and that's uh, Elaine's fantasy uh, of a lullaby of Broadway. This is just absolutely brilliant. So uh, two things about that that I discovered that were interesting. One is Andy Kaufman uh, loved Broadway music and dancing, and uh, Mary Lou said that she used to talk to him all the time and share her stories of Broadway and teach him dance steps, and that he was thrilled when they got to do an episode where he, uh, Tony, and um, Judd dressed up as the Andrew sisters. <laughs> so she she came from a, a Broadway background and music, loved it, and it was always her biggest dream to get to do it in an episode and if you watch the clip, you know there's some fun direction in there too. How they're dressed in everyday clothing, walk by one of the poles in the garage, and they come out in tuxes as they come out the other side. A clever editing thing. And uh, it, it, the other thing that I mentioned, I think, to Jim Brooks, and I was talking to him, is if you watch the scene closely, even the movements the characters make it, while dancing, uh, as if they're almost hypnotized, are fit the character perfectly. The way Louis kind of prounces around, the yes. way Alex kind of waves his arms, like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? I, I don't know. But it, it fits everybody, the physicality, in addition to the musical number. And no question about that. And that, to me, that's, that's what made it so great. You mentioned Andy Kaufman. He was such a force of nature, but he also uh, at times could be a difficult co-star. Not everybody enjoyed those uh, moments with Andy or with Tony Clifton. Yeah, Tony Clifton, people will remember if they saw Man on the Moon. You could write a book about Tony Clifton in and of himself and, and the episode uh, that occurred on the show. And what I was trying to do in the article was touch on different aspects of that story. And I went over it specifically with um, Mary Lou about that because in, in, in the skeleton version, he had written into his contract, even with a separate dressing room, that Tony Clifton, his alter ego, horrible Vegas comedian, was going to get a guest starring role. And as a performance artist, it was always set up to fail. But the odd thing about it, if, if you think about it, is rather than do this in front of an audience, a paid audience or at a club, he was basically doing it to the cast and crew around him because they were the only ones who were ever going to get to see it. Mm. So... Uh, he, he does his, his shtick, and, and the, the actors, they were furious. Um, Jeff Conway basically wanted to kill him. <laughs> and, uh, so they shoot Monday to Friday. By Tuesday, any cuteness of the thing had worn off with his dressing up and t demanding uh, new lines and so on. He was supposed to play Louis's brother, and they were going to be debating about what to do with um, their mother. Anyway... They, when they decide to fire him, uh, he calls up, Ed, Ed Weinberger calls up Andy and tells him, I'm going to have to fire you. And Andy basically says, can you do it in front of everybody and sets up another performance, <laughs> which he then plays up by coming the next day with two, two hookers and sits at the table and says, they're going to be in all the scenes with me. And then this whole thing unfolds and 
Jim Burroughs found it fascinating. He, he was telling people around him, you're never going to see anything like this again, so keep an eye on it. And, uh, but some of the actors, in, uh, most of the actors weren't that thrilled with it, although Tony Danza, incidentally, filmed it all. He had a Super 8 with him that day, right. um, but he subsequently has lost the film. Oh. Uh, everybody's given him flack for that from the cast since <laughs> then. He said he lost it in moving from houses. So. I love the story that you tell in the Hollywood Reporter piece about Carol Kane and uh, the length she went to to learn Latka's language. Yeah, so if you, if you listen to the language, there are definite rhythms to it. And in the script itself... Latka's lines were written in English that he then translated into whatever his language was and the rhythms of it. So she needed to figure out that rhythm. And he had already developed this foreign man person prior to Taxi, so he was very um, generous uh, to share that character with her, and he took her to a Chinese restaurant, and he basically said, we're going to order you have to order in the language, and I will translate for you to the waiter. And so they practiced several hours at that table doing that, uh, and she never spoke a word of English, and he translated everything she said. And that was the beginning of the perfection of her character, which added a lot to the series over the last four years. Only five years of Taxi, but safe to say, Mark, that it influenced so many subsequent shows, especially those with a workplace setting. Yeah, you know, when, when you, if you think of, you could make a lot of arguments about what Taxi influenced, because it's a large ensemble group. So you could say a show like Friends wouldn't be possible without it, but you could also then say a show like The Office wouldn't be possible without it because that's a workplace environment with a lot of characters. And every character needs a distinctive voice. As Carol Kane was saying, it doesn't matter how many characters you have in a show, but if you pull a line of dialogue out of the script and you know who says it without knowing, seeing the citation in the script, that's a good script with good characters that you can develop and build off of. And the best shows on TV since then, Frasier, Seinfeld, um, The Office, Friends, all those kind of shows have very distinctive characters with large ensemble groups, with unique relationships with each other, put in real situations that we can all empathize with and see how they respond and find humor in that. Mark Freeman, his uh, new piece in The Hollywood Reporter, Taxi Turns 40, a wild ride down memory lane with the casting creators. It's a great read, some wonderful memories there, and some terrific links uh, to video as well. And speaking about uh, iconic shows, uh, you've got another piece coming up soon in Vanity Fair about Frasier, right? That is true. I have I did a, a, an oral history as well um, with Frasier where I got to talk to a lot of people on that one. <laughs> it's everyone except, unfortunately, John Mahoney, who had passed away slightly before I dived into this. But the Fraser family is so close to one another. And when I say close, I'm saying like godmothers and, and, and adopted parents and so on. Um, they passed me through from person to person. So you have guest stars, the cast, behind the scenes, um, directors, the writers, the creators. And it's a great story. I'm 
hopefully be out in the next week or so. Can't wait to see that, too. Uh, as always, Mark, a pleasure for us to talk with you. Thanks so much for making time for us, and uh, maybe we can catch up with you uh, before too long and talk about that Frasier piece in more detail. Uh, I'd love to, and uh, thanks for having me uh, as a guest again. I always look forward to talking with you. That's Mark Freeman of The Hollywood Reporter talking about Taxi here on Downtown the Podcast. Thanks to Mark, and thanks to author Jeff Perlman, who joined us as well. His new book available now called Football for a Buck. Thanks to you for joining us. We'll see you next time on Downtown the Podcast, brought to you every week by Nice Brewing Company and Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.